And uh, in fact, Ezra and Nehemiah are one story. They're, they're one book, sort of maybe like the, the, the Star Wars canon. And yet you can take each of them on their own and understand what's happening. It's, a, it's an episode contained all in itself. So even though Ezra starts first, we can take Nehemiah on its own and we can, and we can look at it. We can mine what God is doing here. It's the God who rebuilds and restores his people. He rebuilds a city and restores his people. So even though there's one story, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah. At some point, we'll turn back to Ezra. But historically speaking, Nehemiah comes at the end of the Old Testament. I know it's right there in the middle of the Old Testament. But like historically speaking, these are some of the last things that happen before the New Testament is open. So like the Rebel Alliance of Star Wars working to restore freedom and justice to the galaxy. God is using Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild his city and to restore his people in Jerusalem. So just a little context. Israel, the nation God chose from the family of Abraham, brought them out of Egypt, uh, brought them into a land. Well, now Israel has been conquered by the Babylonian superpower in 587 B.C., And now after they conquered, the Persians conquer and now they're ruling. And you can read about what happens in in, in the Kings and Chronicles and in the prophets. But in 2 Chronicles 36 and in Ezra chapter 1, they're the exact same words uh, that that this compiler used together. And and it, it tells us that King Cyrus, a Persian king actually commanded or decreed that anyone who wanted to go back to Israel and rebuild the city could go. And so off they went in three different ways. God was stirring up people to go back and make a name for himself by rebuilding and restoring and Ezra was a part of that. He was a part of the clergy. He was a priest in the in the Old Testament religion of Judaism. And he went back to restore and rebuild the temple and restore the worship in Israel. He was called by a God of heaven to restore the worship of God's people. And now Nehemiah, on the other hand, had a secular job, if you will. He had a job in the workforce. He was was like many of us. He had a job out there. He He wasn't spending his days on his knees praying and preparing sermons and memorizing the law and and meeting with people. He had civic duties. And, And so in Nehemiah, God calls him to rebuild and restore Jerusalem in its civic responsibilities. He was to rebuild the city by repairing the wall and the the gates that were burning. So God is behind the rebuilding of Jerusalem, both in its religious duties and its civic duties. He stirs up Cyrus, the king. He stirs up Ezra, the priest. And now he's stirring up Nehemiah, the layman. Nehemiah is not a religious leader. He's not part of the clergy. It's a secular job, maybe just like you. But he doesn't view his job as just a job. He views it as an opportunity for God to get God's work done. And as a providential appointment for God to get his work done through Nehemiah, Nehemiah was stirred up to do a work for God. 
God is on the move. He's stirring up people. He's rebuilding. He's restoring his people. He's using ordinary people. He doesn't only use Jedi masters like Ezra. He uses normal, run-of-the-mill people like Nehemiah. Ordinary people with ordinary lives to get his work done. I wonder, how does God begin a work? How does God begin a work? How does God sustain a work? And God does his reforming work through prayer. God does his reforming work through prayer. See, prayer is the means God uses to rebuild his city and restore his people. It is a means, but it is a primary means that he uses to rebuild his city and restore his people. So prayer is God's means of doing God's work. So how does God start a work? By the prayer of his people. So we're just going to look at that in two points this morning. Prayer prompted by bad news and prayer offered by Nehemiah. Prayer prompted by bad news Verses 1 through 3, and prayer offered by Nehemiah, verses 4 through 11. And we're just going to start, we're going to work through the narrative and make some points as we go along the way. This is a historical narrative offered to us by a journal entry. So have you ever wondered what it's like to read the journal entries of someone from 2,500 years ago? We're about to find out. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, that's mid-November to mid-December, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa of the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. This is God's word. God has not finished his reforming work on his people yet. What what may surprise us, though, friends, is that God usually does his work of reform on his people through suffering and exile. So Israel is a monarchy. It had been in tumult for hundreds of years. The Assyrians in 722 BC, they come in and they sack, they conquer Israel, leaving only Judah and Jerusalem to survive. And then the Babylonians come in and they they finish the job and they conquer Judah and Jerusalem and leave the temple in shambles and take all the gold and everything out of it back to Babylon. And now 50 years later, the Persian king Cyrus makes a decree that some of the exiles should return home to, to, to rebuild Jerusalem. And so in, in, in the waves of people coming home, Zerubbabel starts the wave in, in Ezra. And then Ezra comes a little bit later and then Nehemiah. But Ezra's work is interrupted by its political enemies. And this is what Nehemiah is referring to in verses 1 through 3. That the, the work of God through Ezra and rebuilding the temple and reforming his worship actually has enemies that come in and interrupt that work. And it's bad news. 
And when you read Nehemiah, just remember you're reading a journal or a memoir in, in some ways. You're reading real, fa- real history. You're reading facts about historical things that happened through the memoir of a man named Nehemiah. Let me just reread it with a modern twist. Dear journal, it is November 22nd, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. That's, usually people get it confused Get Artaxerxes confused with either Cyrus, the king of Persia, or especially Esther's king, Xerxes. But it's my boss, Artaxerxes. And, and my boss, Artaxerxes, um, we were wintering in the fortress of the city of Susa. And my, my brother shows up out of nowhere and he brought from Judah bad news. It's not good news. And I asked him how the rebuilding of the temple is going and how the people are doing. He told me that the city is in shambles and that there are no defenses, that the walls of the, and, the, and the gates are burning down. And that small group that, that we call the remnant survived, but they're in trouble and they're ashamed. And I admit, dear journal, that I am downcast and wondering what God is doing. Where are you, God? Friends, bad news has come. What will it prompt in Nehemiah? What will he do? What will you do? Maybe bad news has already come to you. Maybe you have a cancer diagnosis. Or maybe your parents are getting divorced. You know, in 2017, my wife broke her hip on vacation. We were on vacation and she was playing with the kids and she broke her hip. And uh, she fell down and she said, I think I broke my hip. And I said, no, you didn't. You did not break your hip because I was like, this is not happening to me. Bad news has come. And how I responded was uh, denial. It's not happening. How are you going to respond? Bad news comes all the time, dear friends. Young friends who are in college who have not experienced bad news yet. It will happen. But most likely, all of you have experienced some sort of bad news on a different level or scale. What will you do? What does God want you to do? What does God use to rebuild and restore? How does God start to work? God has brought or allowed bad news to come to Nehemiah and to you because he wants to do a work in you. And prayer is the way God does his work in and through you. So how does Nehemiah respond? Verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. What Nehemiah does is he begins and he tells us in his memoir that he prays. But what it starts with is weeping and mourning. When bad news comes, weeping and mourning is appropriate response. And he does it for days. He fasts and he prays. And what his journal shows us is that when faced with bad news, a courageous leader who's going to go back and do courageous things starts with prayer. Starts with sadness. Telling his sadness back to God. 
Notice he doesn't storm into the office of the president or the king making demands. He doesn't gather a committee to change the laws. He doesn't conspire to overthrow the government. And neither does he fall into despair. You may think mourning and crying and weeping for days is falling into despair, but it's not, dear friends. Nehemiah is teaching us how to respond to sad things when they come in your life. The first place Nehemiah turns is to God in prayer. And what he lays out for us is a prayer of lament. He lays out for us that we should lament. It's appropriate to lament. It's okay to lament. You should lament. Nehemiah is appropriately sad about sad things. When, when Bridget did break her hip, um, I probably was in shock, but I remember just not being able to feel anything for a while. Just like, what do I have to do next? What's next? I got to take care of the kids. I got to make plans. I got to do all this. And I, I just didn't pray. I didn't, I didn't let the tears come. I didn't, I didn't let sadness set in. And God is saying through Nehemiah, sometimes we just need to let it sink in. So we don't despair, but we, we're sad about sad things. We're also not Pollyannish. Poly, Pollyanna, was a, it's a historical figure from a novel in 1913. You can look it up if you want to. But to be Pollyannish is a syndrome a pers- of a person who is excessively positive and blind towards the negative or the real. Now, I tried this, actually, when Bridget broke her hip. When people ask me how I'm doing, it would, it would be like, God is so good. I know he's using this to form something good in me. And all that was true. What I said was true, but what would have been more helpful was being aware of my sadness and expressing that God to God and others in prayer, a prayer of lament, a sadness. God, I am sad that my wife's hip is broken. But that's what Nehemiah does. He doesn't try to tough it out like I did, which my wife can attest to you, I'm not very good at. It doesn't take very long. To, what, what's wrong with you? Like, like something's not right about you. I'm being tough. I'm being a man. I got to take care of things. No, the problem is you're sad and you need to mourn. And this is what Nehemiah does. God has given us a response to the real and the negative things in life. It's called lament. And that is where Nehemiah starts. He weeps. And he mourns for days. It's okay to be sad. Dudes in this room, I don't know the last time you cried, but it's, it's okay. It's actually appropriate sometimes. If you just try to be strong and you try to hold all your emotions in, you're not only going to do something bad for you, you're going to do something bad for those around you. Because you have sadness for a reason. And it's okay to express it to God in prayer in his words. Because prayer is God's means of doing God's work. And often, those prayers are through tears and sadness. And as we move along in Nehemiah's journal, we find that he is no longer just writing a journal, but now he starts to write to God. He starts to write out his prayer to God. It becomes a prayer journal, if you will. In Nehemiah's journal entry in verses uh, 5 and 6, 
5 through 11, we see Nehemiah's prayer offered back to God. He now goes from general to specific. He now reveals the contents of his prayer, not just that he mourned and lamented, but here are the contents of Nehemiah's prayer, dear journal. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that, I, that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. We see the prayer that Nehemiah offers is a multivaried prayer. It's a prayer of, of invocation. It's a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of remembrance. And it's a, a prayer of requesting. And, and we're just going to walk through this together to see well, what do we do? What do we do when bad times come? When hard times come, we go to God in prayer because God does his work through the prayers of his people. So the first thing that Nehemiah does is invoke God to hear his prayer. God, be attentive to my Words Be attentive to my prayers. Invocation. Maybe you've never heard that word before. We don't use it very much, do we? Uh, to invoke is to appeal to something or someone as an authority for an action. For example, he invoked his First Amendment right of speech. Meaning, he appealed to the authority of the First Amendment to defend what he said. Now, Nehemiah invokes God. He's appealing to God as the highest authority that he would listen to his prayer. Because he knows that God will answer his prayer. So did you notice in in the verses above that he appeals to him as the Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God. You are great and you inspire awe. He's not buttering God up. It's not an incantation you have to learn and then repeat and God will then answer your prayer. No, he's telling God about his character. He's saying it back to God. He's 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 saying true things about God back to him. And he appeals to God to listen because he is great and awesome. The king of heaven. You're the only one that can answer my prayer. You're Lord of the heavens and the earth. You're you're high above the heavens and the earth. You you you're sovereign over the work of your hands. You're sovereign over this bad news. It's the Lord 
of heaven. But he's not just the Lord of heaven. Nehemiah invokes him also because he's the covenant-keeping God. He keeps his covenants. He keeps his promises. That is, he's a relational God. God keeps his promises both to curse and to bless. He, he curses those who break his covenant, but he faithfully loves those who obey his covenant demands. And Nehemiah doesn't just... Derek Thomas says this. Derek Thomas is a pastor in South Carolina. He says, prayer, prayer for Nehemiah was not an excuse for inactivity, nor was it the last resort. Prayer was the work that God called him to do. Why? Because prayer changes things. Not because of a a power that is in prayer, but because it is through prayer, our, our poor and inadequate prayers, that God has ordained to direct events and steer the course of history. Prayer is the way God works to steer the course of history and direct events. And Nehemiah knows this. Invoking the God of heaven through prayer is God's means of getting God's work done on earth. And now that Nehemiah has invoked God to listen to him, he's appealed to his authority to listen to him and answer his prayer. What does he say? What would you say if you invoke the president's attention? What would you say? What would you have to say? What Nehemiah says is shocking. It's as if you invoked the the attention of the president. The president gave you his attention and you had an audience with him. And you said, Mr. President, we have disobeyed your laws. This is what Nehemiah does. It's shocking. It's supposed to shock you. It's supposed to wake you up out of your lethargy and say, man, he's just invoked God to hear him. Why didn't he ask for what he wanted right away? So Nehemiah's prayer is not only a prayer of invocation, it's a prayer of confession. He invokes God to hear his prayer of confessing his sin. Because the reason why Nehemiah didn't go to a request right away is because the greatest work to be done in a sinner is not him doing great things for God, but recognizing that God has done great things for the sinner. The greatest work to be done, God works through prayer, and that's his way of getting things done on earth. And the greatest work to be done in a sinner is not great thing, doing great things for God, but recognizing that God has done great things for the sinner. Amen. (laughs) He does not invoke God to listen to a list of good deeds or reasons why God should answer his prayer. Nor does he get, nor does he get to the request that he wants. I mean, how many of you would, how many of us would just ask, right, for, for, for things that we actually don't need? I, I know I would. My prayer when Bridget broke her hip was, please don't let it be a broken hip. But God knew that's not what we needed. God knew better than us 
No, he goes right to the heart of the problem. He knows that sin is the reason there is bad news. Now, I'm not saying like when Bridget broke her hip is because of some sin she did. No, but Bridget broke her hip because there's sin in the world. There are consequences for sin being in the world from Adam till now. And those consequences look like hurt and suffering and exile. But, but Nehemiah does not list their sins specifically in his journal. But he, he, we know some of their sins, actually. In Deuteronomy 27, in Deuteronomy 27, Moses lays out the curses for not keeping the covenant. For instance, there were curses for oppressing the poor. If you read Deuteronomy 27 sometimes, you'll notice that one of the curses was for oppressing the poor, defenseless, and marginalized. And in Nehemiah 5, we'll get there eventually in a few weeks, that is an episode of this very sin. After they were back from exile, in Nehemiah 5, 1 through 5, Nehemiah's journal entry is is just about that. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So they're back in the land and they're rebuilding the wall. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And, And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children, and as our, as, are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. And, and Nehemiah is upset because they're oppressing the poor and the powerless. And, and these are some of the things they got exiled for to begin with. And now they're doing it all over again. He knows that sin is is the reason that there is bad news, but he also knows the good news of God's mercy. He, He appeals to God to listen to his confession of sin. Why would he do that? Why why would anyone do that? Because he knows of the good news of God's mercy. He knows God's character. He knows the story of how God redeemed Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea to show them his love. And God's work on earth starts in the hearts of God's people. He he has graciously given us a way back to him. And it starts with confessing your sin directly to God. Friends, this is, if you've read the story of Exodus In the book of Exodus, as God brought them out of Egypt, this is sort of a new Exodus. The people are coming out of exile and they're coming home. But it's only it's only a marker. It's only a it's only a a small story pointing to another greater story of a greater Exodus. When Jesus Christ comes and he goes through the water of judgment for his people on the cross. And God is bringing his people through death to life in his resurrection. That is an exodus of the grandest proportions. Not just from slavery to freedom, from death to life is what Jesus says. 
And prayer, a prayer of confession, is God's means of getting God's work done in our hearts. That's where the work must start. If you have never confessed your sin to God in hopes of forgiveness from him, friend, I encourage you to not wait another moment. Turn to him. He will forgive you. Ask him. Tell him. I am a sinner. Me and my, I have sinned against you. I've broken your laws. I've rebelled against them. And I confess them to you according to Nehemiah and according to Jesus. He will hear your prayer. He will forgive your sin and he will heal you. You can do that any place under any circumstances. And he will heal and forgive. You may have a hard time believing in this good news But you need not. Nehemiah did not. We see that from his prayer of confession. We see his his Nehemiah's prayer for remembrance. And this is where the good news comes in. Because Nehemiah doesn't just stop with his own sin. He calls God to remember his covenant character and his covenant promise. He invokes God to remember. Remember what? His plea is that God would remember his covenant with his people based on his covenant character. His promise with his people based on his character to keep that promise. Deuteronomy 28.64 lays it out this way. It says, and the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. He calls, God, uh, he, he calls on God to remember that he has kept his covenant promise to judge his people by scattering them in the exile. That's one of God's good promises. He is holy. He cannot let sin go. And, and, and so what he does, he keeps his promise. But he also calls God to remember his covenant promise that if they repented or returned to God and kept his commandments, that he would gather them. Deuteronomy 30, 2 through 4. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, if they're they're where the sky meets the earth, if they're in the outermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will take you. Do you recognize that prayer? That's exactly the words Nehemiah uses. Friends, he pleads with God based on God's own words and reminds him of his character. God is omnipotent, omniscient, and eternal. He doesn't forget anything. So why does Nehemiah say, remember? Remember, O God. This is the work of prayer. You do not call on God because he forgot something, but you call on him to remember, that is, to act on his promises and his character. Prayer changes things, friends. 
Because God has ordained to direct events and steer the course of history through prayer. One of the ways um, you can learn to pray God's own words is just to pray God's own words back to him. So we handed out this. This is a free from Crossway as a resource. It's called Praying the Bible. You can read this in one sitting. You can, you can skim it. And, and basically the principle here is to take a psalm of the day and put it in your own words and pray it back to God. And you can have some really helpful points in there. Set a timer for seven minutes, pray the psalm of the day, and see if you run out of time before the alarm goes off. It's, this is exactly what Nehemiah is doing. He's not setting an alarm, but he is praying God's words. He's praying God's words right back to him. And God has given us all these feelings of, of lament and sorrow, but of, of happiness and thanksgiving. And he's given us inspired words to pray it right back to him. And I encourage you to do that. That's what we're trying to do in the prayer service is learning together how to pray God's words back to him. To be requesting the very things that he wants us to request. To make his will our will. So it's a shameless plug for the nine o'clock prayer service. Uh, it, it will be a joy if you show up. Uh, you, you will be in, encouraged uh, as other people teach you to pray. And, and you're praying out to God together. It glorifies God. It makes him happy when you remember his character and ask him to act accordingly. So kids, I was telling some kids before the service, here's a trick. I'm not going to make any friends with parents this morning. But we're having a birthday party in just a few minutes. There's going to be cake at that birthday party. And if you want another piece of cake, tell your parents, remind them of their good character. I know you're generous, dad. I know you to be generous, mom. So can I have another piece of cake? Now, most of the kids are up in the service. So parents, you can you can do with you what you want with that. That's what Nehemiah is doing. In a sense, he's reminding of God of his good character, but not to manipulate him to get another piece of cake. He's reminding him so that he will act according to his will and according to his character and do the things that he promised. Prayer is God's means of getting God's work done on earth. And that's exactly what Nehemiah prays and Verse 11, he ends his prayer with this. It's another invocation. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And I just want you to notice that before he asks for anything for himself, how much he praises God. How much he sorrows over his own sin. How much he is sad over the sad things that has happened. And then he finally comes to this request. Give success to your servant. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Do you want to know how God answers that prayer? You'll have to come back next week. Or you can read Nehemiah 2 and 3 and find out. But this is what God does. How how do we know? I mean, what's going to happen to the branch in the next 10 years? Ultimately, we don't know. Ultimately, it's God's church. 
God's going to build his church. He's going to do what he wants with this. So here's what we pray. God, give success to your servant and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. God, give us success as your church. Would you give us another 10 years? Would you grant us mercy in this place to remember who we are, saved sinners who are, who are preaching good news to, to sinners who need to be saved? Grant us success. So what, what's going to happen? If we want another 10 years of gospel ministry at the branch, it will happen through God working through prayer. God working through prayer. Friends, there are lots of stories about how revivals have started all across the world. One of them started in the 1800s in, in New York. And just one man, a layman, was not a clergy. He was not a, a minister. He decided to start a prayer meeting for 30 minutes at lunchtime. His name is Jeremiah Lampier. And that, that meeting was just to pray for the salvation of non-Christian people. And it expanded and expanded. And people, some people would come for five minutes and some people would come for 30 minutes and some people started and came for hours. And a revival broke out in the 1800s in New York City. And the only way to explain it is through prayer. It's the, it's the, only, it's the only, only way to explain it. That God does his work by his means and his means to get his work done on earth is through prayer. Praise God. The branch's 10-year anniversary is large part due to prayer. Let's keep going. Let's depend at prayer, get on our knees before God and ask him to do his work based on his character. Father, we come to you as your people, hopeful and expectant that you are, going to, you are making a name for yourself. And, and just the group of, of people here, will you grant success to your people in your mission and have mercy on us, O oh God, according to your steadfast love. Amen.